if 400 years later we're mystified about how and why Shakespeare did what he did, it seems like it's valuable to talk to people who are doing that stuff now. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 15th year, number 750, depicting William Shakespeare. Two months ago, I spoke with author Nicole Galland about her latest novel, Master of the Revels, a story of time travel, witchcraft, and Shakespeare in which the great poet and playwright himself plays an intriguing supporting role. Since it's still Shakespeare's birthday month, and since this Friday, April 23rd, is his actual death day and probable birthday... I thought it'd be fun and interesting to talk about the challenges of making this celebrated genius a character in your own work. I started by asking Nicole the obvious question. What goes through your mind when you when you realize, oh my gosh, Shakespeare is a character. I'm going to have to depict him and give him something to say. Is that a challenge or is or do you go, ah. Yes to both of those. Um, one of the ways that I handled it, but I, I didn't, I don't think I did this strategically i think it's how he just landed for me is that he's actually kind of lost in thought a lot of the time he's he's a fellow of few words in the book because he's kind of always as robin describes him like it's always like he's his mind is somewhere else and it's as if there's another conversation somewhere else he'd kind of rather be participating in so i never put myself in a position of him having to say a whole lot and therefore me feeling pressured to either take the piss out of our sense of how articulate he must have been or living up to that sense of how articulate he was. I kind of sidestepped it. Well, and that's that's what struck me on this second reread of the book um, is that you you are depicting him as a writer. And Thank you, yes. <laughs> being, one, being one myself, watching my wife when she walks on around the room in a, around the house in a daze, I realize, oh, I'm in that same daze all the time too because even when you're not sitting at your desk writing, you're figuring out something in the back of your mind. So when people are looking at you, they're going, where, where is he? Right, right, yes. So that's, I wanted to, it seems to me that that must have been true of him as well. So that was a very convenient choice for me to make about him. Well, and do you think, uh, um, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you, you depict him as a writer because of course he is arguably the greatest that ever lived. Um, you didn't. You weren't interested in taking the piss. You weren't. You weren't even interested in him. You say this several times. He's he's the most um, laid back man of the theater that one could expect. He's not flamboyant. Yeah. He's not. Uh, doesn't that present? Well, that's because Burbage gets to be flamboyant. You know, like if you get into a, if you have if you have this model that Burbage and Shakespeare, you know, like we're in some kind of um, locker room diatribe or or competing with each other to be the alpha male then that would just completely overtake the story and it's that it's not a story about them so it was fun to let Burbage kind of have all that space and yeah correct and, yeah and 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 Shakespeare is not a, a leading role in this novel um he's a supporting role and that's even maybe greater but um were you at all conscious of how Shakespeare was like you. Was there an autobiographical element to your depiction of Shakespeare? 
The being lost in thought a lot, I think, is definitely a thing that I do. I wish I was as chill as he was. I wish I was as confident as he was. But he definitely, um, everything, everything takes second place to his need and desire to be focused on his work. There is a scene where there are things going on in the same room as him in his flat in London. Um, two other people are having fun and he is completely uninterested in the fact that that is happening because he's writing Antony and Cleopatra. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah priorities. <laughs> right, exactly. So that was me when I was growing up, my, not that people were having, you know, fooling around in, in the living room or anything, but I grew up in a small house that was a, it was a very, very small house with sort of an open plan living space. Mm -hmm. So my mother was cooking and my father was watching the news and my little sister was doing whatever she was doing. And I was just sitting there writing. Yeah. So that sense of like, I can tune out whatever I feel like tuning out. And, and also um, the scene when he first meets Robin, just a sense of, I really don't wanna have to deal with real world problems because I might be working on King Lear right now. Like, please let me just get back to my writing. That that is me. That I definitely do that. It's it's so easy for me to want to just say I whoever I'm with or whatever I'm doing. I really love you all. I just need to go away for a week yeah. and work on this one chapter, and then I'll be back. And I think that's I think that's so terrific that not only you are able to sort of tune things out for the most part and get your writing done, but that yeah. so is Shakespeare in your depiction of him. He's not a, a rampaging diva calling for quiet. I must have quiet. I'm right, a genius. Right. If he'd called for if he'd called for quiet in London, he wasn't going to get any. So I think you have to learn to just do that. Well, I, I you know, as you know, I, I, we're having this conversation because I am fascinated by the ways in which, because we know so little about Shakespeare, we look at him and like the mirror Hamlet advises us to hold up to nature, we see ourselves, you know. Yes. And yeah. um, and so, you know, when I when 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 we put him into William Shakespeare's long lost first play, it was as of a young writer figuring it out sort of in real time. It's like Right. Oh my God, I can't make Richard III a nice guy. Oh my God, I'll get thrown in the tower. <laughs> right, right. Um, and we've all been there. That the the um and maybe maybe that's why I depicted him that way, because I, I I'm constantly I feeling like I'm there that way. Yes. I you did that so well in that in in the play that it's only the fact that you're saying it now that makes me realize like, oh, not everyone automatically gets that about writers, because that to me was just like that's just him doing what you do when you're writing. Right. You're constantly <laughs> smacking your head against the wall. <laughs> wait, I can't. That's a, Wait a minute. That's not going to work. Wait, what if I did that? Right. So, yeah, you 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 nailed that in in that play. Well, and 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 it's um, the only I've said this before, but the only thing sillier than asking an author how much of the book is autobiographical is not understanding that everything that you write is autobiographical. Yeah. Yeah. But were there. What's, fast, what's also lovely about Master the Revels is that because it's an epistolary novel, you get to write in so many voices, the voices yes. of so many characters. And yeah. um, do you find yourself consciously compartmentalizing aspects of your voice or your own personality to, to embody various characters? Like, is this character more you in this way? And is Shakespeare more you in another way? I think that's true, although I do need to point out that except for the fact that one of the sonnets is quoted, I never 
try to use Shakespeare's voice. Shakespeare does not narrate any part of the story. That's true. Good point. Yes. Well, yes. And that that was me going, on. <laughs> I'm not going to take that on. No. No way am I going to take responsibility for trying to write like something that Shakespeare would write. Just That's just not going to happen. So what I did instead was I have his younger brother, who is a terrible but very earnest writer, as I was when I was young. Um, Yes, you you very accurately captured his terrible voice. <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you. That was fun. That was so when I when I go back and read you know poetry that I wrote when I was eleven, yeah. that's that's kind of what became. Although I didn't write dirty stuff the way that 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 Ned does. Yeah. Um, th that was definitely where that came from. And then Robin, in so many ways, is like just my inner theater theater girl. I I've grown out of being like that, but I think I was like that at some point. Um, There's then, something wonderful about Robin that I hope none of us ever grow out of. Oh, yeah. Well, let's hope. Yes. Yeah. But let's also hope we can keep it under control. The other lovely thing about your depiction of Shakespeare is that you depict him as a man of business, you know, with an eye towards uh, an eye towards how his plays will be not only be produced, but perhaps be remembered. Um, and I wonder if that's a thing that's conscious in your mind or do you wish you were better at it or... How's that factor? It's definitely, yeah, I wish I was better at it and it's on my mind. Yeah. It's on my mind as a thing that I'm not good at. Mm. Um, but but definitely um, the, the, the tension that at that time, I think, did not have any of the weird stuff that in America gets piled on the arts, but the tension between the need to like do your art and the need to get paid to do your art and to support, to be able to support yourself. And in America, we just, I don't know if it's Puritanism or, or what, but, you know, we have like the glamour of Hollywood. And then the fact that if you're not in Hollywood or, or um, Broadway, that people go, oh, well, that person wants to life in the arts, but they don't, that means that they, you know, that they know how to say, do you want fries with that or whatever. And, and there, there's just a lot of sort of, it's just awkward. It's just, I remember when I was younger and when I was pursuing a theater career full time, a sense of shame that I was not successful by metrics that are best understood financially. Right. And um, and that is that's a, that's a struggle for everybody in the arts, unless they're independently wealthy from some other means. But um, it just it has a weird baggage to it in the states now. It mm -hmm. did not back then, but that definitely it's you know I'd be lying if I said it wasn't on my mind. Well, part of that here in the States is that there's not one center of, of places to be. There's Los Angeles, yeah. there's LA. If you're, if you're an actor in London, you can do every aspect of performance there is. Exactly, right. You have to sort of make a choice if you want to be a New York actor or an LA actor, or as in your case, living in Chicago or the Bay Area or some, some other place that isn't one of those two. And, and it just, it becomes, there's just these weird status things that happen. And you're right, it's simpler in London. Well, and just a couple of months ago, I was on an episode of Chicago Med. And I know that for some people that will go, oh my God, you're so successful. You've totally made it. It's like, well, no, it's just going to be seen by a lot of people. And, and in, as you say, as a metric that people understand. Uh, my, my grandfather was in JAWS. He was the medical examiner in JAWS. And my that's your grandfather? That's my grandfather. And my first acting teacher, Lee Fierro, is the woman who slaps Chief Brody in the face. So that's the only film that either of them ever did, but like everybody knows who they are.
Nicole, how dare you complain about your career? You are you are so successful just by <laughs> you knowing those two people. That's right. See, there you go. So it's not what you know, it's who you know. Hi, I'm Gary Andrews, the creator, as Gary Scribbler, of Doodler Day and the author of Finding Joy and also the co-presenter of the web series Drawing on Shakespeare. And you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. It's William Shakespeare's birthday month, so it's the perfect time to give the Shakespearean in your life pop-up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. Shakespeare's birthday is this Friday, April 23rd, so now is the perfect time to share the love with the Shakespearean in your life. Pop-up Shakespeare is on sale worldwide, and you can find links to independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. And now back to my conversation with Nicole Galland, the author of Master of the Revels. Were you able to say things? I mean, you're you're writing a novel, so that you had that's your that's your task is to tell the story of the novel. But were you able to say things in Shakespeare's voice or in another character's voice that got something off your chest, that expressed something important to you over and above the needs of the narrative? You know what? As you're saying that, something inside of me is going, "Oh yeah," and I can't remember what it was. Okay. <laughs> I do remember a few times realizing that I was kind of, I, as a sort of a sidebar, that I was getting to state an opinion about something in some kind of indirect way. And now, now, thanks a lot, Austin. Now I'm going to be obsessing on wondering what that was. Well, get back to me, will you? I guess that's that's one of the things I love so much about Master of the Revels and and the depiction of Shakespeare is that he's you you depict him as a craftsman. He's not a diva. He's not a genius. He's not an artist. He's just a guy doing his job. He happens to be very good at it. Thank you. That's what I wanted. So I'm really glad to hear that. That's, I, I'm glad I got. I'm glad I got that in. Talking about Shakespeare as a businessman, um, one of the great uh, uh, threads and tensions of Master of the Revels is the is the tension between Edmund Tilney, the Master of the Revels, the one who had to uh, uh, approve of everything, and um, 400 years going now, um, uh, acclaimed genius William Shakespeare, who even William Shakespeare back in the day had a gatekeeper. He right. had, a, he had a, a system, he had to figure out how to maneuver in a way that I'm sure a, a novelist needs to negotiate editors and publishers in a way yep. that a playwright has to do the same thing. Was that, was that, in investigating that relationship between Shakespeare and Tilney, is that something you discovered intuited knew all the knew from the beginning i knew about it i'm trying to remember exactly how i first found out about tilney but i remember being totally fascinated by the fact that there was a gatekeeper and that and that this gatekeeper was played two roles that in our day and age seem like they should be almost polar opposites definitely not certainly not belonging to the same person he was the censor censor and he was the um, promoter. Right. So right. He, decided, he decided what could be said in the plays, what plays could be done. And then once they were done, once, once they were considered acceptable, then he made sure that they were done very, very well for Her Majesty or then later His Majesty King James. 
So his job was to make sure that whatever the royal court had for entertainment was top-notch and inoffensive. Yeah, so, so you make him like both Censor and David Merrick and Flo, yes, Flo Zinfeld. Yeah, right. But he really was like, that's not my interpretation of it. It's he, he, he was the censor for everything. And then whatever, whatever passed muster, the companies themselves would just do them in their playhouses or, or um, yeah, in the playhouses or the amphitheaters. And then, and then when those plays that he had said were okay and that the theaters had done on their own went to the court, he made sure that the production values at the court were acceptable. Right, right. And and you also make a, a, a point in the novel, which I just think is lovely, is that to the degree many of us know Edmund Tilney and all, it's because Simon Callow played him in Shakespeare in Love. Right. And, and got wrong and, and, and miss in like that. In, that script does not actually get the job right. What? What? <laughs> it's a fiction? How dare you? Um, <laughs> Well, and one of the and one of the great moving things about about your novel is that Tilney becomes not just the bad guy, sort of barely even the bad guy. In a way, he was Shakespeare's champion. Right. More so, right. more doesn't than get a bad any guy. credit. Doesn't get any credit. Um, not even from Shakespeare. Not that Shakespeare's just sort of indifferent to it. He's yeah. sort of he's not. He, it's not that he is too great for the little people and he thinks that Tilney's a little per or anything like that. Shakespeare's just so sort of lost in his own head that it doesn't occur to him to be appreciative, but no one's appreciative. And, and he is, Tilney's the guy in the background who never gets any credit for anything. The, the theater people notice him when he does something that annoys them and doesn't notice him when he does something that helps them. And I feel like in the arts, there are so many people who make up the superstructure of arts organizations who in different ways have some kind of relationship like that to the actual creation of the art. And so in some weird way, he's almost like my twisted love letter to all of them. And I've been one of them. Like I was on staff at Berkeley Rep. And so I know what that's like to be the person that you can, people can get annoyed with you and sometimes they'll appreciate you, but you're not really part of the artsy scene, even if you're there because you love the, it's a complicated thing. So he was my, he's my alter ego in that way, I guess. Well, and there's your answer to the previous question of, was there anything that you managed to say that was important to you? Thank you. That is what I was actually trying to say. That's what it was. It was I got that. I knew I'd get it out of you. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Send us your depictions of Shakespeare via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Nicole on Twitter too at Nicole Gallon. Thanks, as always, to master of the Zoom call, Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and GarageBand. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Elizabeth Pamino Emerson. No reason, it's just random. Very special thanks to Gary Andrews, the artist who drew the fabulous depiction of Shakespeare at work that accompanies this week's episode. Give yourself a present and follow Gary on Twitter, at Gary Scribbler. Find his extraordinary memoir, Finding Joy, in an independent bookshop near you. And check out our web series, Drawing on Shakespeare, on YouTube. 
And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, get vaccinated, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 750 ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. This podcast is a production of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.